Welcome back to the first China Path podcast of 2020. James Scullin here from the Australia China Business Council. To kick off the new year on the podcast, we catch up with Mark Tanner from the Shanghai based marketing and research agency China Skinny to unpack some of the prevailing themes in consumption in China and Chinese culture in general. We look at the work China Skinny does at breaking down Chinese target audiences by generation, region, and purchasing habits. We discuss the Chinese government's ability to influence the Chinese consumer, as well as the increasing competitiveness of local Chinese brands. We also look at some of the notable cultural faux pas of foreign brands in China and what trends to look out for in coming years. Mark Tanner is the Managing Director of China Skinny, which is one of China's best known and fastest growing marketing and research agencies. He brings perspective from marketing roles in China, North America, Europe, Australasia and Africa since the late 90s. Under Mark's leadership, China Skinny has established itself as a leader in understanding the latest trends, insights and best practices for the ever-changing Chinese marketplace. China Skinny publishes the most read weekly newsletter about marketing to Chinese consumers and Mark's been quoted in more than 200 international media outlets including Bloomberg, Reuters, FT and Forbes where he writes a regular column. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here in Shanghai with Mark Tanner from China Skinny. Mark, thanks a lot for coming by to the podcast. Thanks for coming by the office. Tell us about China Skinny. What's the work you do here in China? So China Skinny is a marketing, research, strategy, branding and innovation uh, agency. We've worked with over 200 brands across 26 categories. So we try and see things holistically. So, for example, if we're doing a food and beverage um, product, we'd look at health, lifestyle, sports, tourism, all these other categories that are in strange ways related and we try and draw on learnings from them and apply them to the strategy and recommendations that we will give for that particular product or mm. brand. Okay, and, and where does the name China Skinny come from? It's a question we get a lot. The Skinny, we were pretty late to the game. Uh, we've been around about eight years and we were trying to get a chinasomething.com domain and everything was taken, and we wanted it short and memorable. Right. And I know a lot of Americans, a lot of Kiwis and some Australians know the term, what's the skinny, like what's the inside scoop, what's the goss? Right, And yeah. we try and kind of be that inside, just try and have really good knowledge of the market, something that you wouldn't get just from reading a few Google searches. Uh, we try and be a little bit irreverent, and we also try and be not too expensive. Mm. We try and be value for money. So we run things relatively skinny here. We don't have these big plush overheads. And we keep it real. I remember the first thing I learned about China Skinny was through your newsletter. Um, how, how often does the newsletter come out and how long have you been doing that for? Yeah, so the newsletter comes out weekly, every Wednesday morning China time. Um, so around noon in Australia or, or 11 in, in Daylight Savings. And it, we've been doing it for about seven and a half years. So that for us has been a really good um, BD tool. Mm. It's a really good way to, I guess, keep top of mind with a lot of readers. It's the most read now globally um, about marketing in China. But for us, it also forces us to keep up with what's in the market. So right. we have a lot of readers that have been there for years, a lot of readers that have been in China for years, and they expect 
sophisticated and interesting things week in, week out. So it kind of pushes you right. to really come up with, with good stuff. And for us, that gives us a really good foundation that we call upon. Like um, every project we do has an element of things we've learned, trends we've seen, um, data, outlying data. We can pick it as being real or not real um, based on having lived and breathed and written this newsletter mm. in addition to hundreds of projects we've done. Yeah, right. So when, when you have a brand that approaches you to be a prospective client, what, what are they trying to find out essentially about Chinese consumers and, and, and Chinese people? What China Skinny tries to do is we don't just have a cookie-cut solution. We really try and come up with actionable recommendations that are very relevant to a client's objectives. Mm. And I don't think we've had a single client that's had a similar set of objectives to another, like everyone's quite different. Some clients will, will want to understand or just market validation or opportunity analysis in the market. Uh, they want a market map, they want to understand where gaps are and if there even is a, an opportunity for their product or brand. Mm. Um, others have been in market, we work with the likes of IKEA, Nike, um, Saic Motors, the biggest car company here, um, Colgate, and companies like that that have been in market for decades and they want to make sure that they continue to grow and be relevant and resonant to Chinese consumers. Do, do you have many Chinese brands approaching you to learn about the China market? Now, most of it, we really focus on foreign brands. We right. trying, instead of trying to be everything to everyone, we, we really look at, at what, is it, what are our strengths, what's our point of difference, and, and be in a niche, quite a large niche. But um, Chinese brands have quite different needs than foreign brands in many cases. Mm. So we've really focused in on, on looking after foreign brands. Okay. A lot of them are based here, though. So after you're approached by a foreign brand, how do you go about conducting your research here in China? Is it, is it through market research? Is it surveys? Is it focus groups? Is it, is it a bit of a mix? But how, how do you start to conduct that research? Yeah, it's a good question, James. In China, there's obviously a lot of information out there, a lot of data, and a lot of it's not very reliable. Right. So we try... It all depends on the objectives and budgets and timeframes, but we try and use as many different sources as practical and to get really, I guess, triangulate the different data sources to make sure that, that we come to a pretty robust conclusion. Mm. So we use a combination of what well, we've experienced from hundreds of projects that we've done over the years, plus we've, uh, we've built some tools in-house that, that do a lot of data analysis. So mm. they scrape data from all these different sources and then we can analyse things like format sizes, price distributions, key claims, all of these very interesting data points that can feed into a strategy. But at the same time, that in itself misses some of the really important factors such as the emotional stuff. Or okay. even it doesn't sometimes can be skewed by fake data, which right. is a real problem in China. So we also factor in... Uh, we have qualitative research, we do focus groups, one-on-one, -on -one, shop-alongs, immersive. And we've developed some quite localised um, methodologies. We use a lot of WeChat in our research. And something with WeChat is, and we were looking in, a lot of our methodologies used to be just like you'd have in Australia or, or other countries. 
but we looked at Chinese consumers and they are different in many ways. Mm. And I used to live in North America and do a lot of focus groups there. And you'd see North Americans are very forthcoming with information, whereas in China people are a little more reserved. Right. But you look at the way they are on social media and they're just incredibly forthcoming. They love to share things. And we were like, how can we tap into that right. and use that with our research? So we use a lot of WeChat research as well. Okay from people, that, their experiences, and, and um, we give them homework over WeChat and they can send in really rich um, multimedia. An example would be Tourism Australia, and we were doing some research into high-value travellers, and we did one-on-one -on -one research face-to-face -face in seven cities, but we also did, uh, we asked these consumers to send in their three favourite holiday snaps. They've all got them in their phone, they send them to us, and then... We talk to them on WeChat about what makes these photos special. Why is it? Why did they choose those three? Mm. And it really gives you a good background into um, what are those emotional drivers, pulls for a holiday? What are those memorable things that we really want to capture when tourists come to Australia? And how can we capitalise on that? Right. Speaking of WeChat, does Tencent make WeChat data available in terms of its users, how often people use it, their ages, or is that something that's kept secret within that company? Yeah, WeChat is, unlike a lot of the data we use, it's much more closed. Right. Like Weibo, you can get a lot. A lot of um, Alibaba's got great transparent data. Mm. But WeChat, they do offer some things, like you can, we, can, we use things like search trends. What are, what are people doing um, for searches? What are they searching for? How are they changing? You can see real spikes with some trends. Mm. Um, the official accounts are all open, so you can look at that. They also have Penguin Research, which we tap into a lot of their insights. Um, mm. They give some good things. So we just use as many different sources as possible. Um, I would love to get into some of the things that WeChat have privately, but unfortunately yeah. <laughs> they're, they're pretty, uh, pretty closed with that. China's obviously such a large and complex country. How do you go about segmenting the market? So obviously there's age groups, there's, there's wealth. Um, are there any other Chinese-specific ways that you break down the market here? Yeah, well, the, the obvious uh, breakdown is obviously geography. Mm. Um, and a lot of people talk about China being this market as diverse as Europe, and then they'll come in and they'll have this this broad brush approach, a homogenous strategy for for all of China. Yeah. And even if you look at the tier one cities, and, and a lot of brands may have a tier one approach. If you look at a city like Beijing, it's quite different from a. The people up there are much taller, for example. So mm. if you're doing fashion or, or even designing cars, you may need a, a larger leg room in the back. Mm. They're about three inches taller than they are down in, really? down in the south. In oh, right. They're also fatter. Yeah. <laughs> about 25% of the population is obese or overweight there versus around 12.5% nationally. Oh, really? Okay. But, but from an emotional standpoint, which is obviously increasingly important for branding, they are more nationalistic up there. They're more likely to buy a Chinese car and, and, and just those national family bonding type messages really connect and resonate. Um, the men are more macho, mm. whereas if you come down to Shanghai, the men are a lot more metrosexual. Right. <laughs> so men in, in Shanghai are famous for carrying their partner's handbags right. or um, doing the cooking and cleaning <laughs> and things. So we, we do work with Rickett Benheiser and we do a lot of their... Um, household cleaning stuff is part of what we do. 
And if you look, if you're trying to sell household cleaning products in yeah. Shanghai, yeah. The, the men are obviously a target market. Whereas in Beijing, I don't think a lot of men oh, would go right. anywhere near the, the okay. scrub. And, and again, Shanghai consumers really connect with more international, more aspirational type messaging. Okay. Down in, in the other two tier one cities, you've got Guangzhou uh, and Shenzhen, which are 30 minutes apart on the fast train. But again, two quite different cities. Mm. So one, Guangzhou is an old city. People, people live... Um, people, over half the population are from Guangzhou. Whereas Shenzhen, it was a fishing village when yeah. China opened up and people have come from all around China. Mm. So most people are new there. So the common language is Mandarin, whereas in Guangzhou it's Cantonese. Mm, right. But from a family messaging point of view, and this is something that, that we find is it really connects with consumers, the family unit is incredibly important. So bringing that through in messaging, particularly for FMCG products, it's quite, it connects a lot. Mm. So you have um, people that live at home in Guangzhou, all these wealthy, big-spending millennials that live with their parents. Right. Whereas in Shenzhen, because they're not from there, yep. they may only see their parents once every year, once every Chinese New Year or, or every few months. So from a family bonding messaging, it can be quite different. They're not all sitting around eating yeah. dinner every night. Yeah, interesting. So... You, you, you mentioned the, the different tiers, the, the tier structure across China, and you often hear a lot that the first tiers are quite saturated with Western brands and it's very competitive in cities like Beijing and, and Shanghai. When you look at the lower tier cities um, and, and the uptake of e-commerce and, and, and digital communications, do you feel that the tiers are becoming a little more harmonised and that behaviour is a little more similar because everyone's on these same platforms? Or do you think because these tiers come from different um, development stages that development really regulates a lot of that consumer behaviour? Yeah, another good question. It, we still see, depending on the category and the product, that there can be similarities across China, but in most cases we'll see quite different similarities, uh, quite different uh, characteristics. So you have a lot more sophistication in these higher tier cities. So yeah, it's more saturated, but for some products that are more premium or more abstract, um, they certainly will do better in, in the higher tier cities, whereas lower tier cities are still uh, a, little low, a little earlier on the adoption curve for mm. a lot of products. Okay. But you're getting these consumers that are Travelling more, and obviously travelling opens your mind and, and gets affinities with foreign products, lifestyles, etc. Um, so you're getting more direct links for airlines and, and things. But things like app, even the apps that, that lower tier city consumers use are quite different, and the way they use them is quite different mm. from uh, from the higher tier. Mm. Um, so your channels to market are, are different. And if you look at from a retail, from a brick and mortar retail. China is incredibly fragmented, so you may get in with some great national retail chains, but they're unlikely to be in a lot of these lower tier cities. Yeah, right. So it's about um, connecting and, and making sure you've got the right channels, the right from a marketing and a sales standpoint. Okay. Um, thinking across generations in the in the West, we have, I guess, quite broad generations where you have baby boomers, Gen X, millennials. In China, I see that China Skinny break it down the millennial group between post-80s, post-90s, post-95s. 
What's the explanation for such finer, narrower generations here in China? I guess it's really reflective of just how fast China is changing. Mm. They talk about China years, like in the way they talk about dog years, so something <laughs> that takes seven years in Australia. Right. Quite likely happen in a year in China. Yeah. And as a result, the way consumers are behaving can rapidly change within a decade or even five years. Okay. But I think getting back to baby boomers, it's yeah. a really good example. Um, in, in Australia and most Western markets, are incredibly lucrative um, segment and, and a lot of them are empty nesters, the kids have left, they've enjoyed a lot of uh, equity growth from property booms, so they're pretty wealthy consumers and they're really spoiling themselves now, yep. spending in a lot of areas. Whereas you look in, in China, a lot of these older uh, consumers born before 1980, yep. they have grown up in a China that wasn't very wasn't like it is now. It was incredibly poor. It went through some pretty rough times, mm. famines and revolutions, etc. And as a result, these people are very conservative, very frugal, still programmed to save for a rainy day and make sure they don't really um, spend everything they earn type thing. In the way that, I guess, our grandparents that lived through the Great Depression were incredibly frugal. Yeah. It just came a little later in China. So as a result, they are not they're very conservative. They don't really buy foreign products and, and really adapt to the lifestyles in the way that a lot of younger consumers have. Yeah. So they are not... A, like, everyone talks about this ballooning elderly population in China. Mm. They're not exactly as alluring as you would think when you scratch below the surface a little bit. Okay. But fast forward to 1980 and you get these consumers that have grown up in quite a different China. And, and so, just to give you a really high-level view, post-80s, um, they, they've grown up in China, they've seen it go from relatively poor and humble to all the shiny big buildings and fast trains and, and wealth and, I guess, importance on the globe that you, you have today. So, as a result, they... They've seen both sides to a degree. Mm. And, and so the way they behave is a little bit different. But they also, they drink the, the Kool-Aid. They, they kind of are more traditional. They toe the line a lot more. They kind of, what the government would like, they really behave in that way more so. Okay. Whereas you get these post-90s kids and they are much less conservative. They are... Um, they've only ever known a wealthy China and, and they behave in that way. They're... They, a lot of them have lived overseas or, or travelled overseas or have friends that have done so. They're, they're into popular culture from either the West or Japan or Korea or, or a lot of these areas. And as a result, they're much more, I guess, more like consumers you get in the West. They're freer spending, they're fads. They're breaking down traditions. Mm. So whilst you can, you can group post-90s, mm. Uh, or post 95s, um, there's all these sub segments within, obviously by city, by um, demographic, by socioeconomic standing, but also by tribe almost. Mm. So, a tribe that I find incredibly uh, interesting are the what the government affectionately calls as sissy boys. Okay. So, you have this, um, if you look at the, the state media, they obviously um, are quite straightforward in the way they, they um, present things. 
and People's Daily, the national rag here, um, was talking about sissy boys just being, like, they're not that happy about it. Like China's growing, they're wanting to be a powerful country. They are a powerful country and part of that is having a powerful military. Right. And there was some applications for um, the army. Obviously, they want to grow the army. And all these young boys were aspiring soldiers. They'd seen these Wolf Warrior 2 movies and things. They're wanting to join the army, fight for the nation. And apparently, some cities, it was high as 56% of young males failed the physical entry exam. Okay. And the People's Daily didn't like this. And they're talking about these sissy boys that drink too much fizzy drink, drink too much Coke okay. or uh, whatever it is, and they play too many computer games and they masturbate too much, right. like, literally in the okay. national papers. <laughs> Great. But th- there's this real, these kids are really breaking down traditions. And in China, historically, as men are macho and, and they should do ma- manly things, but you're getting these younger generations now that are, well, I don't, I, I quite like being kind of feminine. Yeah. And so if you look at the fastest growing fashion categories on on Tmall, they're like late for males, they're like lacy, transparent garb. Like yeah. They like the the fa- that type of fashion. Whereas you look at women, it's suits traditionally a, a man's outfit. So you're uh, you're getting quite um, the breakdown of the genders. Um, Male makeup is growing at over fifty percent a year. Things like BB cream is growing at over two hundred percent. A male lipstick and all this stuff that you wouldn't expect males to be buying in in China, they they they're going gangbusters, and I think that represents a bigger a bigger thing as one. All these long held traditions in China are being challenged by yeah. these younger generations, and two, these younger generations are really joining these tribes and and feeling really pretty comfortable in these tribes and as a result can brands that really connect with them in that way are doing very well because these these niches are incredibly large yeah well i think it's interesting that that china's such a a, a top-down centralized country in a lot of respects and i guess with consumer culture there seems to be so much movement from the bottom up in the way that these consumer cultures are, are being formed um even just the other day i saw that um, the government's trying to regulate how long people play video games for and that you'll need to register um, on an app, I think, where you have a 90-minute limit of how mm. long you can play video games. To what extent do you think the government can influence people's behaviour when they see people playing video games too much? Is, is this something that the government can actually curb that behaviour? Can they keep that in control, do you think? Very much so. It's, it's fascinating looking at what's happening. China is... In many ways, opening up, opening up more for foreign businesses, but in other ways, it's getting more and more control. Mm. And and a lot of that is coming from technology, because the adoption of technology is absolutely phenomenal in China, more so than any other country in the world in a lot of areas, gaming being one of them. And if you're a gaming provider like a Tencent or a NetEase, you have to you have to follow um, China Beijing regulations, mm. and a lot of that that. Uh, that time limit is around age. Again, they have too many kids with um, that are short-sighted or, or skipping, like missing physical examinations for the army. So they want kids to do more things. Yeah. Um, so they they can regulate that, and and the game providers have to toe the line. But you're getting things like um, facial recognition now, which uh, if you look at 
in most countries in the world, people are a little bit freaked out by all that type of thing. Mm. Whereas in China, um, people see it as a way, I guess they're used to having control and they see it as a way to make life more convenient. Yeah. So if you look at things like mobile payments, everyone was talking about mobile payments um, a few years ago and it's like now you just don't pay with cash anymore here. Right. But the next big wave is facial payments, so which is even more convenient. You don't have to pull out your phone and hold up. You can continue to play your computer games or, or whatever on your phone or you don't even need your phone. You can just go up to a shop and they'll scan your face and that's how you pay. Like There's some really interesting stores here, incredibly innovative stores where they have smart shelves. So you'll walk into the store, they'll scan your face, they'll have cameras all over and you go and pick up, say, an apple off a shelf, and the weight of the apple, they'll say, oh, that person's just picked up two apples or whatever. Yeah. And then you'll pick up some milk and some honey or whatever, and then you'll leave the shop. And yeah. that's all. They've scanned your face. They know it's all tied in with your bank account. And, and because of that, it's great for the consumer, and, and, and they like the convenience. But it also allows a lot of data and a lot of control mm. um, for consumers. And so... At what stage is the, the social credit system at at the moment in China? I know that that was launched as, as pilot projects um, across the country. To what extent is that being implemented? Because I know that's something in the West people, um, you know, feel a little, a little uneasy about that the government has so much data about you and that your consumer behaviour can regulate how often you go overseas and, mm, you know, certain mm. benefits you get from society. So what, what what level of implementation is the social credit system at, at the moment? Well, there's a lot of people that talk about it being rolled out. I think it might be next year that, it, that it's meant to be rolled out en masse, but it, it's been going for years, both voluntary and involuntary. So you're getting... You've already had... I think there was about a 1,000 or over a 1,000 guys that are unable to travel on trains or, or planes because they had did some stuff deemed inappropriate. Mm. Um, but then you also get consumers who are, like, there's a lot of other different kind of, like, Alibaba has their own Sesame Credit scores, which you can use to get discounts or to get into things, mm. or even people use it on dating sites. Okay. They'll say, I have this much Sesame Credit, that means I'm a good upstanding <laughs> citizen, you, should, you right. should go out with me type thing. So... People are voluntarily using it. Like, I think the way Chinese view it is quite different than the way that Western people may see it as a Norwegian 1984 type thing. Yeah. Another area where China has a lot of contradictions is through sustainability, where on the one hand, China does generate a lot of the world's renewable energy these days and, and, and has a lot of investment into non-fossil fuel energy sources. But then on the other hand, when you come over here, you do see there's enormous amounts of plastic and, there, and there's still a lot of waste. To what extent is sustainability playing a role in people's shopping behaviour? Yeah, if, if you look at all the research, every time, and not just our research, but a lot of other research will say Chinese consumers want to support sustainable, ethical brands. But then if you look at behaviour, it's a little bit contradictory. Mm. So in most cases, we see consumers are have much less uh, appeal to this type of thing than in, in the West. There's a lot less awareness and a lot less concern about it. Um, there's a lot of token things, like if you read all sorts of reports, it'll say that public transport usage is so much higher here 
and I think that's more of a necessity rather than yeah. like it's a pain in the pain trying to drive a car here and find a park and things. So most people take the subway, which is so incredibly well connected. Yeah, um, things like electronic vehicles. Uh, China accounts for about half of EVs, and so everyone's saying about that Chinese are, are really aware of the environment because they're buying EVs. That's complete rubbish because mm. the reason most consumers buy EVs is because one. There's license plate lotteries in a lot of these cities, mm. and they the only way they can get a license plate is to get an EV because that was a way around it. So they'd buy it. There's also heavy government subsidies. Right. The minute those subsidies ended, EV sales have dropped. Like they were growing at, at very high double digits. They grew two percent last year, and and this year they're actually weighed down. Mm. The overall car market is is is, is contracting, but but a lot of it is is representative of people aren't buying EVs for the reasons that they might buy EVs in the West. Right. Um, but if you look at the types of sustainability environment messaging that really works, it's all about me. Like, as a consumer, I want to know that this is good for me, that's healthy, it's much more individualistic. Rather than the West, it's much more that that larger um, well-being that, that people are more concerned about. There's this feeling that um, consumers are from consumers that Beijing should really be the the guys that fix it as an as an individual. What can I do? One of 1.4 billion. Right. It's starting yeah. to get some of the younger consumers that are that are doing it, but it's a real shame. There was a movie that came out maybe it was four or five years ago. It was called Under the Dome. Mm. It was along the lines of an inconvenient truth. Um, a very well-known former newsreader uh, that now lived, or at the time lived in California. She'd take, she'd moved there because it was a bit too polluted for her little girl. Yep. And then she came and made this movie, or this documentary, really raw, really great, um, really covered off some of those environmental issues that China's facing. And mm. there was an element of, yet the government's got to do this, this and this, but also as an individual, there's things that you can be doing. And it was great to hear that and to see that as 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 something and you you haven't seen much in China, and it went gangbusters within the first weekend of launching. It was viewed hundreds of millions of times. All the government, state media was behind it, and and then all of a sudden, I think the Beijing thought, "Oh, this is mobilising the population. This is giving people a voice." and Maybe we should, this is getting a bit out of hand, so they just cut it. Right. And this documentary just disappeared right. from China. It's still on YouTube. Okay. But it just disappeared out of, out of existence here. And it's a real shame because it was a real opportunity for, for individuals to start taking account. You look, even if 100, 200, 300 million Chinese do something a little bit better, it can make a massive impact on the planet. Now, they have, from July, they've started... Um, pretty punitive recycling program here in Shanghai and it's going to get rolled out to over 40 cities uh, in the next year or two and that's really good that's really really um, you can get fines if you're not putting the right um, rubbish in the right areas um, again a lot of people didn't even know how to sort rubbish and so there were all sorts of surveys around the time yeah but you still have this real culture of um, Packaging. Chinese love packaging and they also love convenience. So delivery is incredibly popular here. Like yes. Tens of millions of food packages delivered every lunchtime in China. And, and you get 
packet plastic within plastic within plastic and it's always too dirty because it's got grubby food so you can't really recycle it. People will, they might be in an, an office building and there'll be a coffee shop down below in the foyer but they'll still order a single cup of coffee to be delivered to their office and, and it's just that real culture. Yeah, well there's no, I don't see many keep cups around. No, there's not a lot of keep cuts here. Yeah, so it's, you just look at, we bust our, bust our butts in, in, in the West and like you've got 25 million people doing it in Australia it's, and then you look in China where you've got 1.4 billion if they started doing it too that would just really make a big difference on the planet. Um, so thinking about how competitive the market is over here um, do you find that Western brands are essentially competing against each other or do you feel that domestic brands have got to the level in some segments where Western brands also need to keep an eye out for Chinese competitors now? Yeah, it's a really good question. It, and if we look at five years ago, or a little bit over five years ago, when we used to do market analysis and, and recommendations, the best practice would almost all be foreign brands. But now, just in, in almost every, every recommendation we have, domestic brands make up the vast, vast majority of best practice, how best to operate. Mm. So if you look in 2017, um, 98% of all growth of FMCG came from domestic brands. Mm. So pretty much all growth came from Chinese brands. Okay. And it was a bit better last year. It was about three quarters of growth. But in short, the domestic guys are doing much, much better here. And it's not as a result. There's rising nationalism, which certainly helps domestic yeah. brands. Yeah. But you look at things like milk. There's still this perception that, that milk is, is much better from overseas. That melamine scandal that happened more than a decade ago is still incredibly raw yeah. in Chinese minds, which is bizarre because Chinese trends change so yeah, quickly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Things like that, it's, yeah. it's, it's still very relevant. There is a perception that Australian, New Zealand... Milk is better, but they still, if you look at the analysis, and we, we, this is something our tools do, we mm. will we'll, we'll evaluate the price of Australian milk versus Chinese milk, whatever. Imported milk is, or domestic milk is 37% more per litre. Yeah. And it's just bizarre. And a lot of it, if you scratch right. the surface, you look at why it's like Chinese brands have much more appropriate formats for milk, for example, they're smallest packaging sizes, so um, Chinese consumers like it single serve, fresh on opening, it's convenient to carry around and, and things. They also have much more targeted, um, more segmented, so they might be approaching the sissy boys or children or whatever and just have it much more relevant um, rather than just this generic homogenous product. So what have been some of the more innovative approaches you've seen Western brands take to make their products and their packaging a little more susceptible to Chinese tastes? Yeah, you're starting to get more, and, and we something we try and do with our clients is really make sure that their format and everything is, is, is bang on, because you can have the greatest marketing in the world, which is another thing that we try and make sure it connects and resonates in the right places, really understanding that customer journey. And, and those key touch points and which of those touch points is relevant. But if you don't have a great product, you, it's a little bit in jest. Mm. So there are some foreign brands. I think there's the classic uh, 
Coca-Cola have done a really good job with, with localizing. They, they use augmented reality, so which Chinese love all that, that latest, greatest tech, and you scan a, scan a, a can with, with your phone, and it, it's, they have different city um, cans, and it gives this kind of cool, wacky intro into the city and some key opinion leader in that city. So they, they've really connected well. Right. They've made sure that things like fiber, protein, all these really on-trend ingredients are incorporated into their uh, products. Yeah. This year there's been um, a few high-profile blunders by Western brands in the, in the China market. One of those was Dolce & Gabbana. Can you, can you explain what happened there? Yeah, Dolce & Gabbana had this pretty insensitive, old-fashioned um, advert about China. They had this, I guess they were trying to tie back to their Italian roots, and they had this Chinese model who was trying to eat a pizza with chopsticks, and it was just really poor taste. Mm. That was kind of the first bad bit, but it happens a lot with foreign brands here. But I guess what was really bad was the way that they responded, so their crisis management plan was pretty poor. Mm. And and you had, I think it was either Dolce or Gabbana, I think it was Gabbana, ongoing hot ranting on his Instagram about Chinese people and how he didn't like them, although they account for a very large share of his, his revenue. Yeah. And obviously that was picked up and, and really went down badly with a lot of Chinese consumers. And so what's the impact now for that company? Is that... Is it, do you feel like they're feeling that in, in sales now? That Without brand's really a doubt, been the diminished? Brand, like a lot of brands bounce back because although Chinese are very sensitive, they also move on pretty quickly. Okay, but yeah. I guess it was just so bad with Dolce & Gabbana that they, they've never really got over it. Yeah. But even little things like saying Taiwan's a country or Hong Kong's a country and, and all that, that's been really common. The NBA gaff um, was... was I found incredibly fascinating to watch because a lot of people, including Beijing, were, were pretty angry about it. Uh, but 25 million people still watched uh, the opening Lakers-Clippers game. Well, the NBA is so massive over here. That's such a conflict for, for NBA fans, I think, when, when the government's pulling you one way and then you've just got this obsession with what's essentially the national sport over here. Totally, totally. I think what made it more interesting was it was the Houston Rockets GM. Oh. So it was the team that Yao Ming, yeah. still probably the greatest athlete that's ever come, one of the few great athletes that's on a mainstream sport that's come out of China. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a lot of mixed emotions here. But, but I guess something you saw Beijing do was they definitely, after the initial anger, they tempered it down a lot because they, they realised that, yeah, a lot of people do love basketball mm. here and we don't want to start a revolution by just banning it or anything <laughs> yeah. like that. Um, finally, Mike, what do you think people and, and yourself, what are you keeping your eye on in terms of future trends over here in the market? It's a question, we, we do a lot of trend work. Um, we do specific trend projects and then trends always are incorporated into to projects we do. And there's the common ones, the health, the, the lifestyle, fitness as, as in sports are really big. Um, convenience, anything that's convenient is really connects well with Chinese. Mm. Trading up, um, people are, are spending more, but then there's also a little bit of trading down going on now because because um, the economy's slowing down a bit. But overall, there's definitely this this movement towards more premium quality products. Mm. 
Uh, the segmentation, I mentioned the sissy boys earlier. Yeah. Um, that's a really important one to really grasp rather than just having a homogenous um, target audience. It's really trying to make sure you're, you're more segmented, more targeted mm. and more resonant. Mm. Fantastic. Okay, well, it, it's so fascinating talking with you. I think the thing that I find really interesting is that it's not just the fast-moving consumption aspect of, of, of Chinese shopping behaviour, but just how intrinsically that's interwoven with, with Chinese culture and how the, the culture is so live at the moment in terms of, you know, like what's going to be a trend this year is not going to be a trend next year and that it does really kind of pay attention to keep an eye on what's happening over here and it's so great that China Skinny with its newsletter and the work you do over here is helping people keep abreast of all those changes. So, Mark, it's been so great talking with you today. Thanks, James, and likewise. My thanks to Mark for offering his market insights on China's evolving and diverse set of consumers. To learn more about China Skinny and sign up to their weekly newsletter, drop by to our podcast homepage at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. There you'll also find all our previous episodes. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and help us to continue to grow our listenership. And if you have a friend, colleague or client with an interest in doing business with China, please pass on one of our episodes. This activity received funding from Austrade as part of the Free Trade Agreement Market Entry Grant Program. The views expressed herein are not necessarily the views of the Commonwealth of Australia and the Commonwealth does not accept responsibility for any information or advice contained herein. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and until next time, zai jian. <laughs>